I seek a special interest in your prayers this morning for several reasons. This morning's message is not just, uh, we're not continuing our uh, discourse from the book of Romans this morning, take a little break from that. For another message, it's been a burden on my heart for quite a while. And when you have a burden on your heart and you've been meditating on something and then someone else comes and says, we really need a message on this, that's sort of the, uh, the inspiration you need to, to dig in and to work. Another reason I seek an interest in your prayers is that what we're looking at this morning, as in all other areas of my Christian life, I have not attained perfection in my own life and probably never will. Neither will any of us. And the third thing is, the things we preach on, we generally get tested in. You ever found that? You know, you address a subject and then you're tested in it. So, we'll start this morning with a question and we'll get to the topic a bit later. For you children, you may be able to identify with this question right off, but for those of us who are a little older, let's put on our imagination, go back to our childhood, and perceive that we are just a child and we are walking through the neighborhood with our father, hand in hand. We're just big enough to toddle along. And as we walk around the block in our neighborhood or down the road or through the woods or wherever we found our home, there would be several vicious dogs come running out towards us. And as a child, we would cringe and fear. But our father would just look at them and say a word, and they would melt away in fear. Maybe there'd be a big snake come across our path. Recently, some snake hunters caught a uh, python, I believe it was, in the Florida Everglades, weighed 195 pounds. They didn't get the record. The record is 215. Suppose that 195-pound python is coming down the trail in the woods toward you. And your father just reaches out and just grabs that thing and with a flick of his wrist breaks its neck and casts it away dead. And many other things happen like that on your walks with your father. As that became commonplace, what would your perception of those dangers become in your mind as a child? That's the first question we'll work on this morning. The second question is, what would your perception of your father become? Psalm 23. Turn to that if you would like. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever." probably one of the favorite passages of Scripture for all people of all times. It's often read at funerals. But do we believe it? Or is it one of those Scriptures that became so common that we don't really comprehend the essence of the depth of the meaning? 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He restoreth my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Is that reality for us? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Turn back a few pages to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers. The rulers take counsel together, saying, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break his bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. So here is now a picture of, of the powers of, of earth, the kings, the rulers, the whatever the powers are, and they're taking counsel together against the Lord, against God, and said, we're going to break off the, the restrictions and cast away. Verse 4, he that setteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That whatever forces are in the earth today, or on the earth today, cannot thwart God's plan. Whatever they come up with, God will stop when He chooses to. It says here, He that setteth in the heavens laughs at those who are going to, in their mind, rise up and make themselves something against Him. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill, Zion. I will clear, declare the degree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask me, and I will show thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the time of the year when we think about Handel's Messiah, verse 9. Be wise now, therefore, ye kings, and be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they who put their trust in him. So the Lord here, according to this, is not concerned about those who rise up against him. The title of this morning's message is Fear Not, Little Flock. Fear not, little flock. The term fear not is used 63 times in our King James Bible, and uh, quite a number of times it is coupled with fear not and be thou not dismayed. We'll find that in the same verse. And I noticed interesting as I went through the Scripture and looked at the verses where the term fear not was used, a few times it was used by someone who was setting someone up to take advantage of them or take their life, but almost, I'd say, the largest percentage these 63 times is God or a messenger of God or a person of God, a prophet of God, speaking to God's people 63 times or most of those 63 times. And I noticed that when God sent His angels to speak to people, the opening words were nearly always fear not. We find that when Zacharias was in the temple, and the angel of the Lord came to him and said, fear not, Zacharias, you're about to have a son. You'll name him John the Baptist, etc. 
When the angel appeared unto Mary to tell her that she was going to be um, the mother of the Christ child, he opened the conversation with, fear not. When the angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph in a dream, telling him to take Mary to be his wife, the angel said to Joseph in the dream, fear not. When the angel appeared to the shepherds, said, fear not. When Paul had been on the sea, tossed about for 14 days and nights, the angel of the Lord came to him in, in a dream and said, Paul, fear not. Go up on the deck, tell the sailors to take food, there will be no loss of life. Fear not. When Jesus called James and John, sons of Zebedee, and he called them to leave their father and their father's ship and their father's business and become fishers of men, he said, fear not to follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And when Jesus comes to John in the book of Revelation, and John falls down before him in, in what he sees in the vision, Jesus said to John, the glorified Jesus says to John, fear not. And that's just some of the fear nots in the Scripture. I found this passage in Isaiah 41, beginning at verse 9, that I thought summarized well why we as the children of God should not live in fear. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from chief men thereof, saith unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, all that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they, shall, they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them and shall not find them. Even them that contend with thee, they that war against thee shall be as nothing, a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying to thee, Fear not, I will help thee. And now we're going back to our little illustration we started with. The child walking with his father on his daily walks, or her daily walks, however it was. God said here several times that I will uphold thee with my right hand, the hand of my righteousness. I will hold thy hand, saying, Fear not, I will help thee. So what is our perception of the things that the dangers that we see around us in light of the Scripture we just looked at, and what should our perception be of our Heavenly Father? There's two aspects that we're considering together this morning, and I invite you now to turn with me in your Bible to our text chapter, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. We'll recognize our text verse comes from verse 32. Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, I think for the sake of time, rather than reading this entire passage, we'll just read a number of verses and then uh, expound on them before we move on. So, the setting here is Jesus, and there's an innumerable multitude. There's a lot of people gathered around him. 
In the meantime, there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch as they trod one upon another, and began to say unto his disciples, First of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in the darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear and closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. So Jesus opens here in teaching his disciples in the midst of all this multitude that God will reveal everything. There's nothing hidden that God doesn't understand. There's nothing hidden that God doesn't comprehend. And there's nothing that mankind can do that God isn't able to reveal. I believe that can happen here in time. And if not, time will certainly happen in eternity. So remember, whatever we may be worried about, God is there already. He knows where it's going. He knows how it will turn out. And he can reveal the truth at any time that he chooses to. Now we come to verse 4. And we notice here, now, Jesus begins teaching here. And he said, and I say unto you, my friends. There's several times, well, I know there's at least one other time where Jesus talked to his disciples. He said, I'll no longer call you my servants, but I'll call you my friends. But he says to his disciples, now I say unto you, my friends. Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. So he drew them in closer, I believe, by calling them friends. And then he tells them, as he begins this discourse, it goes right on through the rest of the chapter, do not be afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid of them that can kill the body, but after that they have no more that they can do. All right, let's talk about this word fear here, or afraid, and the word fear on down through this chapter. It's interesting. It is a Greek word that's went through the Latin and made its way into the English language. It's called phobia. You know what a phobia is? It's an anxiety, fear of something that might happen. It's sort of, what if? It is a lack of it is the opposite of trust. I'll put it that way. Maybe I shouldn't say like It's the opposite of trust. It's a phobia. He said, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. It's, it's the anxiety type of fear. Not so much a reverence type of fear, more of an anxiety type of fear. He said, do not be anxious or anxiety about those who can kill your body. Yes, they can do that, but that's all they can do. That is the limit. But who should we fear? But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him that after he hath killed hath the power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. He said, this is the, this is the, the focus that you ought to be focusing on when it comes to reverence and fear and awe is the God of heaven, who has power over both your body and your soul. Fear him. Reverence him. Live in awe of him. And then he goes on and gives us a number of illustrations as to why we are valuable in the sight of God, why he cares about us, why he's concerned about us, and why that our fear ought to be toward God 
and not the anxiety and the phobia towards those powers around us. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them forgotten before God? Or even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are more value than many sparrows. I didn't count how many fear nots are in this passage, but there's a lot. Fear not, you are more value than many sparrows. So Jesus is telling his friends and us today, consider how valuable you are to God. I came to earth for you. I died for you. I'm, about to, I'm going to die for you. I'm about to rise again for you. I'm going to heaven to intercede for you. And it keeps getting better as we go. So why are you afraid? Why is there anxiety in your life? You are more value than many sparrows. And now we come to verses uh, 8 through 10. So verses 6 and 7 was our value before God. It begins to show us our value before God. And in verses 8 to 10, turns the corner, and it challenges us in the, the value we place upon God in our lives. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Jesus knew, Jesus told them there would be persecution. They would be brought before councils. They'd be brought before kings. They'd be brought before different people to be interrogated for their faith. And he's telling them, when you come into that setting, and he's telling us, when we come into an opportunity to speak a word for God, do it. Do not be ashamed. Stand up for God and say, yes, I'm his child. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And yes, my trust and my faith is in him. If we confess him before men, Jesus said, I will confess you before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak of be forgiven him, but him who unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. I don't plan to spend a lot of time on that verse because I've preached on that recently. And when they bring you into the synagogues and to magistrates and powers, take ye no thought of how or what thing you shall answer or what you shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in that same hour what ye ought to say. And I've said one of the challenges of this message is realizing the need in my own life to rest and trust. You know, I think if I were incarcerated and knew that tomorrow morning I would be brought before the magistrates to give testimony of my faith in Jesus, I'd probably lay awake most of the night meditating and praying about what to say. But it says here, God will meet you at that time. God will meet you there, and He will give you, through the work of the Holy Ghost, what you ought to say. And it's interesting, Jesus is teaching along here, and someone out of this great multitude runs up, and they interrupt Jesus. Nothing ever happens by chance with God. Notice what this person had to say. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? So here comes this fellow up, and he wants... Uh, Jesus to divide the inheritance with his brother and obviously get it right or however he wanted it to do or to turn out. And Jesus said, who made me an arbitrator? That's not my calling. 
That's not what I've came to earth to do. And then he said to them, probably his disciples who were there listening and watching, he began to teach. So Jesus, the master teacher, takes this request and he uses as a teaching opportunity to address, to address one of the main sources of our human phobias, our fears, and that's things, our urgence. What may happen? What may happen? And notice what Jesus said unto him. He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And I went through this passage some years ago and underlined the word things, and there's a lot of times where it talks about things in this passage. And Jesus is saying, be careful, be careful, because the abundance of a man's life or the value of a man is not in the abundance of things which he possesses. And we all understand or give lip service to the fact that we're only stewards. We're passing through. Someone said recently that we are resident aliens, and I agree with that. We're simply passing through, and someday we'll be gone. And whatever we've accumulated will be dispersed. So don't put your trust in those things. And he spake a certain poem to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought with himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do, I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? And so is he that layeth up treasure for himself, but is not rich towards God. So it's not what we possess that brings value to our lives. And then we have this illustration here of this rich man who had much. And this passage is not telling us that we shouldn't can or plant a garden or butcher a cow or anything like that. But it's telling us that we ought not to put our trust in those things. We know the Scripture says, Go the ant, thou sluggard, and consider how we ought to work. But don't worry about these things. Trust God. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. And I'm, let's jump ahead here a little bit and look at verse 34 that we'll get to later. It says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that, that verse 34 is really the essence of what Jesus is addressing here because he's telling us the things that we focus on, the things that we set our heart on, is where we're going to place our value. They are the things that we're going to have the tendency to be anxious about, to have anxiety about, to be worried about, where our treasure is. And he'll go on to tell us later how to take care of that little issue. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought of your life what you shall eat, or neither what the body for what you shall put on. For life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouses nor barn. For God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you by taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? And if ye then, which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toll not, they spin not. Yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
If God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? This passage talks about, it gives reference to sparrows who are very common. No doubt they were very common then as well. It gives reference to ravens, which were no doubt common at that time. But he's saying, dear friends, Jesus already opened us up as friends. He's saying, dear friends, don't you understand that you who are made in the image of God, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, how much more value he places on our lives, how much more concern he would have about our needs than he does about the sparrow or the raven who is gone and has no eternal value. And seek not what you shall eat or what you shall drink, and neither be of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But rather seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So I'd like you to join me in a few questions to think about. How many of you remember Y2K? Yeah. All right, some of you younger ones wonder what Y2K is. Well, there was this theory that when the computers got to 1231-1999 and switched over to 11-2000, they didn't have the capacity to operate through that. There was going to be this catastrophic event worldwide, and there was a lot of diesel fuel bought and stuff stocked up. And, and anyhow, yeah, people got all worked up about this thing. This was going to happen. And I was dairy farming at the time, and I decided, well, I was going to do my best to try to stay awake and see what happened. And I sat down in the easy chair, and I woke up the next morning. It was time to milk, and the lights came on, and that was the end of it. But anyway, nothing happened. But people got all worked up, and they stocked up all kinds of stuff. And, and uh, like there was a joke here a year or two ago, and the pandemic came and said some people didn't need to stock up on toilet paper. They are still using their Y2K store. But uh, I don't mean to be poking fun, but... There's always something that people are worked up about. They're always worried about, oh, this is going to happen, and that's going to happen. What if this happens? And It's been going on since I was a child. I remember riding a school van to school. We have these conversations about some article that was in some publication or whatever, and was this going to happen, and, and on and on. And recently I heard one, this person was talking about how the, the powers that be are getting ready to, to lock up the money, and on and on and on, and you really need to be prepared for this, but then I realized at the end it was an advertisement where somebody was selling shares in gold and silver. So, at the end of most of these things is somebody selling something, okay? They're making money off of it. So, this way is just a little easier, I think, a whole lot easier, God's way. So, should we as Christians be living in anxiety about the future? Is that the testimony we should have? Is that the way we ought to be living? Should we be buying survival kits, dried food kits, and hiding them in our survival room that we built in our basement? Should we be doing that? It's closer home than you think it is in our circles. If we're living in that level of fear, what do we have to offer our unsaved neighbors? with Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. 
was talking to a man recently who's not a church-going person, I'm encouraging him to become one. And in another conversation, he mentioned about someone else he was talking to, and he said, they have a lot of fear. And uh, that bothered me because that other person's my Anabaptist brother. How can we encourage people to have faith in Jesus if we leave the testimony that we're fearful people? After all, he'll do for this. Let's move on to verse 31. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Is that a promise? Is that a promise that we can, can grasp? That if we seek the kingdom of God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that God will provide for our needs. Can we rest in that? And in our text verse, fear not. Do not have anxiety or phobia, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And I don't know if that verse is exciting or not, but it does me that we have a heavenly Father who's excited to just bestow upon us the kingdom of Jesus Christ and empower us to live in us and lead us through and empower us to be light in this dark world and to be witnesses for Him and to call people into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I think that's such an exciting verse. But it begins with, do not have phobia. Do not have anxiety. Rest in your Father's promise. And in verses Back up and see what I put in my notes. God knows what we need as we seek His kingdom with our lives, our time, our energy, and our possessions. He will provide the things we need. Do we believe that? Now Jesus gives us a formula for trading anxiety and phobia for peace that passes understanding. Is it possible to have a peace like that? thought about a lot of things the last couple of weeks. I was thinking about this message. Paul and Silas were arrested because they shut down some satanic activity and beaten severely and put in stocks. But what were they doing at midnight? They just broke forth in a song service of praise, and they started singing and praising God. And what happened? They were set free. A jailer got saved, and a church was started. Would that church that got started if they'd have been there moaning the blues and wishing they'd never became Christians? I don't know. They broke forth in singing and adoration and praise. There was another time Peter was found himself in a similar situation. I believe there were 16 soldiers guarding him. He was in stocks as well. And... Uh, Herod had just uh, executed, I believe it was James, brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, and it pleased the people, and he decided, tomorrow I'm going to execute Peter. And you know what Peter was doing that night? The Scripture says the angel had to slap him on his side. That indicates to me he was sleeping peacefully. Tomorrow he was getting his head cut off, and he was sleeping. Dear people, should we live in anxiety? Now, the formula for trading anxiety and phobia for peace that passes understanding. Verse 33. Sell what you have, give alms, provide for yourself bags which wax not old, a treasure in heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, 
there will your heart be also. You know, it's hard to make a person anxious about something that they've given away. You know, we're sort of getting out of the dog business, and I don't worry about the dogs that we've sold or gave to other people. They're taking care of them. I don't have to worry about that anymore. I've released that. It's God's. It's theirs. <laughs> yeah, they're God's, but anyhow. Well, I know the one is, because we sold it to Pentecostal family, and he told me they was going to pray over that dog. But anyway, uh, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's our treasure? Where's our hearts? Where's our treasure, and where's our hearts? There was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus once, and he said, Good master, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, You know the commandments. He said, oh, I've kept those from little up. He said, You lack one thing. Sell what you have, give the poor, come to follow me. And he said he went away sorrowful because he wasn't willing to release that which he had fixed his heart upon. And I don't know if he ever came back to Jesus or not. That I appreciate, it's called When to Walk Away. And it says there's 33 times when Jesus chose not to chase after people and try to work a compromise with them. Well, he never did, actually. And that was one of them. He didn't go back and say, look, buddy, let, let's cut a deal. Uh, no, he said, here, if you're willing to release what your heart's fixed on, I'll be your Savior. The rich young ruler. He gave, opportunity, gave up opportunity to secure eternal treasure because of his anxiety about his things. Where is my heart? Where is our heart? Where is our treasure? How do we get there? How do we get to the point where we can have the peace that Paul and Silas had at midnight, that Peter had while he was indicated he was sleeping the night before his execution. How do we get there? Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. This is Paul writing to the young man Timothy. Paul's now an older man. He's encouraging this young man to continue on in his faith and his walk. How do we get there? How do we exchange Anxiety for trust. Second Timothy six, Second uh, Timothy, chapter one, verse six. I won't read the introduction. You know that. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now, I would understand from Scripture that Timothy was an apostle Paul. Paul seemed to kind of just get behind him and encourage him and, uh, you know, feel free to get out there and, and speak and, and do it. And he's saying here, stir up the gift of God. It literally means fan into flame. In other words, be fervent about serving God, Timothy. Get serious about this thing. It's like taking a weed eater and putting it on a bonfire. I mean, not a weed eater, a leaf blower and putting it on a, a bonfire and just Find that flame and get it going and serve with passion. Therefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on my hands, for God has not given us the spirit of what? Fear. God has not given us the spirit of fear. Now this is not the phobia of fear. This is a fear of being too timid to speak out as we should. He's not given us a spirit of being timid and fearful. But he's giving us a spirit of power, dunamos, dynamite, the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is in our lives as Christians, as children of God. 
He's given us a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. A mind that's not easily disturbed. A mind that is stable. He said, those are the three things, Timothy, that God has given you and us as well. And be thou not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me of his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the affliction of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. So Paul is saying, look, don't be ashamed. Don't, don't be repulsed or, or held back by my life and my chains and my imprisonment and all that. And the things that I'm suffering was he said, I'm not ashamed of what's going on in my life. Now, the verse that I'm looking for that I want us to talk about is verse 12. How do we get to the point where we can release anxiety and have God fill us with peace in its place? For I know whom I have believed. Paul was convinced without a shadow of doubt of who Jesus Christ is and was in his life. So he knew who he had believed. He also was persuaded beyond a shadow of a doubt of what he was able to do. I am persuaded that he is able to keep. That means to set a guard over. And when God is guarding something, no one else can get to it. It is safe. Which I have committed unto him against that day. So he believed, he was persuaded, and it was in God's keeping. Now, what I found interesting a number of years ago when I found this, that at the end of verse 12, we have the word, I have, we have three words, I have committed. It comes from one Greek word. And it is a Greek word that is only used one time in Scripture. And that's a Greek word which means to place into someone else's trust. Some of you older folks may have a trust fund set up, I don't know. So when you pass away, there's someone else that's going to manage that and take care of it. You have cut off all ties from it. It is their responsibility. That is the Greek word that we have here. It's a deposit into a trust fund. And Paul is saying, I am convinced about whom I've believed. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep everything that I've placed into his trust fund. Now, the question for us is, how much had Paul placed into that trust fund? Everything, right? He had given his whole life into that trust fund, and he knew that wherever God led him, whatever God chose to do in his life, God was in control, even those chains that bound him and held him. were probably the reason we have these letters today, because had he not been bound, he could have went in person and preached to these churches. God was working ahead. We don't know what the future holds. I'm not so uh, naive to believe that the simple or the, the easy life that we and some of our parents have enjoyed for the last 50 to 75, 80 years here in America since the last draft is something that will continue. I think we'd all agree it will not because it's somewhat of a unique time in Christian history to have a period of freedom from persecution as long as American Christians have had that. 
I'm not so naive as to think that, that there may not come a time when we may need to flee from our homes with nothing but the clothes on our back. We don't want that. My flesh recalls from that. But the reality of it is, if it comes to that, this God who took care of Paul will take care of us. What if there had been no persecution in Jerusalem early on, and the early believers had been able to just meet around there and had never gotten flushed out and took the gospel out? But God had it planned. There was the Roman highway system. There was travel, and Paul was a Roman citizen, and he could just about get anywhere he wanted to, and he could... Paul's citizenship was tremendous value in his ability to get out and to go places and to appeal to Caesar and, and to do whatever he could. God had that already, and the persecution, I believe, was part of flushing those people out. Actually, I feel kind of... I feel a personal connection to that because there's a group of people up to the north called barbarians, and somehow some of those people got flushed out, took the gospel up to the north of those barbarians. And that was Switzerland in that area. And that's where my ancestors came from. So, and light's coming on for some of you. Wangers are barbarians. But, yeah, that's, that's where it came from. So, I see, I feel a personal gratitude to those people who went north and took the gospel. And those people that went south and went into Africa and they went everywhere. We don't know what God may do in our time. And I'm just, I recall from it just as much as any of you do. But I know it'll be perfect in God's plan. Whatever he has for us, it will. Believe, persuaded, kept, committed. Are we anxious about something? Give it to God. Give it to God. Some of you have, uh, know the story of Otto Cooney and uh, he went down there and hired somebody to plant his pineapple trees, and unbeknownst to him, when you plant somebody else's pineapple trees, that meant you had half ownership. And he fought with those people and fought with those people over those pineapple trees and everything else in his life, and he was just so frustrated, and uh, they called him uh, Tuon, the angry white man. And anyhow, finally he just got to the point where Paul was here, and he just released it. He just he gave his life and his children's life and his wife and the pineapple trees or pineapple plants, whatever they were. He just gave it all to God. And you know what the natives said after they were around him? Well, they said, Tuon, you became a Christian. He said, what? I've been here for years preaching to you all. But they said, yeah, you always preached about it, and we hoped someday we'd meet one. But now you've became one. <laughs> See, they recognized that he had released, and he had the joy of the Lord, and those people came to the Lord. You know what they told him later? They said, Tuon, all we wanted is for you to teach us how to die right. You've been here fighting us over these pineapples. He said, we just want to learn how to die right. And that's a challenge to me. Do we have neighbors that say, just teach me how to die right? And we're worried about stuff, and we're not telling them. There's one more key component to exchanging anxiety for peace. And this is the driver that makes it all happen. Go with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I meant to say chapter 4. 
chapter 4. Notice verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets are going out into the world. Dear people, try the spirits that try to sow anxiety in our lives. Try the spirits. And I'll skip a whole lot here because of time. What is the driver in expelling fear and replacing it with peace that passes understanding and joy unspeakable? Let's start at verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifest the love of God towards us, because that God sent His only begotten Son of the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given of us his spirit. Friends, Abba Father, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love and he that dwelleth in God and God in him. Now verse 17. Now we're answering the question, what is the foundation for replacing anxiety with peace? Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. Did you catch the last two phrases? As He is, as God is, so are we in this world. We are one with Him through Jesus Christ. Now, verse 18, there is no fear in love. There is no anxiety in love. There is no phobia in love. But perfect love, or mature love, casteth out fear. Casteth is E-T-H, a continual, ongoing action. It's the love of Christ dwelling in our hearts, flowing out of our lives, that casteth out fear fear. Why? Because fear hath torment. Fear hath torment. You see, peace and fear are not compatible in our spirit. Because there's torment where there's anxiety and phobia. And he says, the love of God casteth that out of our lives and he that feareth is not made perfect in love. Dear people, as I studied this, I was just amazed at how much the Bible is saying. We're only scratching the surface. There's so much we just couldn't go to this morning. It says, if I live in anxiety, God's love is not being perfected in my life. We love him because he first loved us. And if a man say, I love God and hate his brother, he's a liar. And he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this command we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Perfect love. Love for God. Love for our fellow man. Peace with God. Fear being cast out. And walking in peace with God. Fear hath torment but love brings peace. 
How do we do that? Release our grip. Give to those in need. Love God. Love others. And fear is gone. Peter made it very simple. Fear God. Love the brotherhood. Honor the king. Very simple. I'm going to leave us with one more question, and I'll let you answer it for yourself. Is being fearful sin? Revelation chapter 12. Excuse me, Revelation chapter 21. And he said unto me, it is done. This is the end. It is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Isn't that a wonderful passage of eternal bliss? But then verse 8, let's consider it. But the fearful unbelieving, abominables, murders, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, dear people, I hope you understand the burden of my heart this morning. Fearfulness is in that list, but peace and love are in Christ Jesus. So I encourage us, let's eliminate the sources that are bringing anxiety and phobia into our lives. Someone said to me recently that they see a lot of this in circles that don't have the Internet. So I don't know, maybe it's coming through the budget. But if there's something that's bringing anxiety into your life, whether it's reading material or listening material or podcast material or some radio program or whatever, people... Turn it off. And let's get into the Word of God and, and be like Otto Coney was after he released his pineapples to the Lord. And they came to him and said, Thank you, Otto. Now you're teaching us how to die right. Can we have a song?